so we're going through the book of Judges. Uh, if you've been here uh, through all of Judges, raise your hand. All right, so a few of you, and that's the nature of our church, so to speak. Uh, but man, if you've been here for any certain time, or if you've read the book of Judges, like, it's really fun to go through, right? Like, has it been fun? It's been like a joy and a privilege. I mean, uh, like, I mean, Judges is actually full of, of gore and scandal and uh, some serious depravity. Uh, and, so, um, and so throughout the book of Judges, there's been this familiar sequence of events. It goes like this. It's, it's sin that happens. Then there's oppression. Uh, then there's uh, a crying out of the people. Then a judge is appointed by God to rule, uh, and then there is victory, and then there is peace. That has been kind of the trajectory of Romans 1, I mean, Romans, Judges 1 uh, through 8 so far has been kind of this idea of, of sin, oppression, crying out, judge, victory, and peace. But today in our text, we depart from this narrative, and honestly, we get a picture of a pretty demoralizing and horrendous scene in the history of Israel, in the history of Israel. I want to set us up by reading this quote from, uh, from C.S. Lewis as we think about the sermon title this morning, Destruction from Within, But There's Hope from Without. Here's what C.S. Lewis says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward, the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He goes on to say, we are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. And so as we think about our text this morning and our title, our sermon title, I want us to think about this takeaway. This, this intent from the passage is this, that we must not grow complacent, but be vigilant in guarding the church and our gospel. That we, as the church, must not grow complacent, but we must be vigilant in guarding the church and her gospel. As we walk through this rather lengthy text, it will be easy for us to focus on Abimelech. And we're going to see here who Abimelech is as the bad guy. We were introduced to him a little bit last week. And he's the per person that we should focus on because he's the, he's the perpetrator. And he is certainly a main character. But he is not ultimately the one who deserves indictment. No, the one that that, that deserves the indictment is God's covenant people. God's covenant people as they are the ones who have failed. They're the ones who have failed the Lord. I'm not going to read the whole entirety of the passage. actually the longest section and chapter in the book of Judges. So we're going to read as we go. Uh, and so I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview. And so we're going to go back a little bit to, to, uh, to Judges 8, uh, 30. This is going to introduce our text that we're in in Judges chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges. It's in the Old Testament, the seventh book of the Bible. We're going to start in chapter 8, verse 30. Now Gideon had 70 sons 
his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. All right, so we're introduced here with Gideon having 70 sons and then having another son called Abimelech. And so when Gideon dies, verse 33, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, who is uh, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So there we're introduced to, uh, to Abimelech and to Gideon and to the people. So it's setting the stage for us as we look at Judges chapter 9. And as we look at Judges chapter 9, we see that Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, who is Gideon, he goes into Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and the whole clan to his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So he goes and he pleads to his, to his family, to his mother's relatives, to the concubine of Gideon. And he says to them, hey, is it, is it better for you to have 70 leaders or is it better for you to have one leader? Now, I want to give some context here because, uh, because it's, it's helpful for us to understand that what is Shechem and where is Shechem in this context? What does it mean for the people of Israel? Because this is important. It was a, it was a very important place in the lives of the Israelites. It was the place where God appeared to Abraham to tell him that this was the land that he promised to give him in Genesis chapter 12. When, when hearing this, Abraham built an altar in worship to the Lord here at Shechem, at a place called Shechem. It was this place where Abraham's descendants gathered to worship after they had crossed into the land under the leadership of Joshua. So Shechem had served as the center, the epicenter for spiritual worship for the Israelites. It was, a, it was this place and the hub for spiritual vitality. It would be the place that would not be tainted, right? Not be tainted by idol, idol worship. Not be tainted by the Baals and the, the Baal Baris and the Asheros. Certainly, this would be the place where we can gather together as, as the Israelites and worship the Lord, the covenant people with a covenant God that certainly no, no way that we would ever go towards idol worship. And yet, here we are in Shechem. And we see that, verse 3, they take what Abimelech says. The mother's relatives listen to him. They listened to Abimelech's plea, and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. See, I want to I just tell you that foreign nations, over and over again throughout the book of Judges, through these first eight chapters, it has been foreign nations who have, who have come against Israel, that God has raised up nations 
to come against his covenant people, Israel. But I want to tell you, it's not, Israel's problem is not foreign nations. Israel's problem is what? Israel. Israel's problem is Israel. Their sin nature is their problem. They did not remember the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was right in their own eyes. This is the theme throughout all the book of Judges. That the Israelites are the Israelites' problem. That every time they find themselves in bondage, in oppression, in any of these things, it is not because of the other nations. God may use the other nations, but it is because of their own sin. And it's important. That's an important part of the book of Judges. Because as we've seen this, uh, that God brings about oppression from these other nations, that is not the case today. That oppression is going to come from within. That there will be destruction from within. And I I want us to think about this in regards to us. Because how many times have you ever said, God, if you would just fix my circumstance, if you would just fix my circumstance, if you would just take care of this circumstance, everything would be okay. But what we fail to realize is that God does not intend to change our circumstances. God intends to change us. So God may bring about certain circumstances, but his desire is to change his covenant people. To go from sin and death to life. I mean, that was the whole book of John we just went through, right? That you may have life in Christ Jesus. So oppression doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside and the hearts of the people. So it's not our circumstances that need to change, it's us. See, a lot of times we look at our marriages and we say, man, if God, if you would just fix my marriage, everything would be okay. God, if you would just, if you would just do something to give me a, 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 some money to help my financial circumstances, everything would be okay. That God, if you would just, uh, just help my children to, to behave and, and, to, and to walk rightly, I would serve you more. But God doesn't give you those things in order to to change your circumstances. His desire is to change you and your heart towards those circumstances. And that's what he's been doing in the lives of the Israelites here is that he is seeking to change their hearts and he seeks to change ours as well. I mean, think of Adam in the garden. When, When sin happens, what does Adam do? What is his first response when he's approached by God? To blame Eve, right? It's not my fault. It's not my problem. It's not my circumstance, that this ha- uh, the sin that we all ensnared by. wasn't my fault. It was actually the woman that you gave me, right? That's what he says. Our inclination is that God would change our circumstances and would change the thing. If you, would just, if you would just make my wife follow me, that would be way better. If you would just, God, if you would just teach her how to submit, man, our lives would be way better. If you, and the wife is like, if you would just teach my husband to lead, 
and our marriage would just be perfect. That's not what God is intending to do. He doesn't just change our circumstances. When we read this sometimes, we go, why would God allow this chapter to even happen? Because he's after the hearts of his people. He's after our hearts to change us. And so as we think about destruction from within, Charles Spurgeon says this, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. I want to tell you that we're deceived by our own sin. We're deceived by our own sin. We look at Abimelech, and we look at the people of Shechem, and we go, and we, and we go how can they let this happen? When we forget that we are these people, that our hearts are inclined towards destruction, that our hearts are leading towards death. And so as we walk through this chapters, I just want to give you a little bit of an overview of what happens in these chapters, and then we're going to look at them a little bit and think about some implications that come from them. So Abimelech, he's our brother. If you get into chapter 4, they pay him. The people, of the leaders of Shechem give him 70 pieces of silver. And with the 70 pieces of silver, he goes and hires worthless and reckless fellows. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, if we haven't seen enough depravity, he goes and kills 69 of his 70 brothers. Just in case there are some that may want to take my throne, I'm going to go and destroy all of them. Lest one, and his name is Jotham. Jotham, hearing this, seeing this, going and hiding, goes up on a mountain. You see this in verse, uh, uh, in verse 7. He goes up to Mount Gerizim. He cries aloud and says, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem. And he gives this parable. He tells this story of, of listen, there was, there was these trees that went out, and they wanted to be kings. And they said, hey, at the olive tree and to the, to, the, to the fig tree and to the grapevine, hey, would you come and lead us with your fruitfulness? And they didn't. And instead, in the midst of that, all the trees said to the bramble bush, the thorn bush, will you lead us into which... To which uh, the bramble responds and says, yeah, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, sure. I'll lead you. No problem. And then Jotham tells the reason why he told the parable here in 16, starting in 16. He's like, listen, if you act in good faith and integrity, people of Shechem and leaders here, and you made Abimelech your king, if you had dealt well with, uh, with uh, Jeroboam, who is Gideon, and his house, and have done to him what his deeds deserved, then, then, then fantastic. May God be with you. But then in verse 20, he says, If not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem. And let fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and he, or Jotham ran away and he fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. This happened for three years. Abimelech was in charge. He was king over his people with oppression and, and leading them towards destruction. And then we see this interesting story of Gale, somebody who's raised up, the, 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 that, um, that God raises up. And he's no better than Abimelech, honestly, except he doesn't murder his brothers. And then we see this, and we see Abimelech destroy Gale. And then we get down to verse 42. 
It says the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told, and he took his people, he divided it in three companies, set an ambush in the field, and he started destroying his own people. And it says in, in 46, when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith, the house of the idol. And Abimelech was told that all the leaders are in the tower of Shechem. And what does he do? He, he lights this tower on fire and destroys the people in the tower. And then he goes to Thebes, verse 50. Thebes. And he encamped against Thebes and captured it. And there was a strong tower in that city. So all the men and women, the leaders go up into that tower. But something happens in this one. Abimelech gets too close. He gets too close to the fight, and a woman who's up top throws a millstone, something to grind flour and all that on, throws it out the window, and it lands on Abimelech's head and crushes his skull, verse 53. He says, hey, you need to kill me because I can't stand to be killed by a woman. My legacy would not be good. And so his servant kills him. So that's the story that unfolds here. Abimelech is an evil king. There's no doubt. But there's some implications for us as a church that I want us to look at. Some real implications. Four implications from chapter 9. As we think about the destruction from within. The destruction from within. So for the covenant people of God in this day, what is that? The church. The covenant people of God. Those who have been rescued by Christ. Those who are gathered in the churches and universal church. All those who have been bought and paid for by Christ Jesus. The covenant people of God. What are the four implications from the book of Judges that we can impart to us today? The first one is this. We need to choose our leaders wisely. We need to choose our leaders wisely. I remember when I was um, uh, when I was at Pillar Church of Dumfries when we were planting that church. I had never been in a church where there had been elders and deacons, and so I had only been in churches where deacons kind of functionally served as elders. And so I didn't understand the different roles of an elder and a deacon, but yeah, it's biblical, it's there. And so I was like, hey, hey, one of the pastors there was named Clint, and I said, hey, Clint, what do I what do I look for when I, when I think about looking for a leader in a church? He said, hey, man, like, if you learn one thing from me, learn this. Character over gifts. Character over competency. He said, character over gifts. And he reminded me of that over and over and over again. And if you read 1 Timothy 3, and if you read Titus 1, where we get these spiritual qualifications of leaders in the church, every one of them are what? Character gifts. They are character, character. There's an emphasis on character. There's one that's on competency, and what is it? Anybody know? Able to teach. That is the only competency that's in those scriptures. The rest of them are character-based. And we would be wise to think about, as we choose leaders in this church, as we think about uh, leaders in this church, and we're in the process right now of appointing deacons, 
and you go, hey, I don't know who, who here qualifies for deacons. Let me just encourage you, go to 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, read it over and over again. Start there and then look around and see who's already doing it. Who's already meeting those character qualifications. I remember, uh, uh, this is a, a self-deprecating story for me, but I planted a church in 2008. I became a full-time pastor, planted a church in 2008. And uh, I made the mistake of leading our church to bring on an elder who had gifts over character. He was extremely gifted. He was the most competent, able-minded guy in the church. He was smart, wicked smart theologically, but there were some questions of character. And so when I asked other leaders, I said, hey, like, when you think of, when you think of uh, this guy... What are some hesitations that you have? And, and they had the same hesitations that I, I could think of and I could see. But the problem was is that I was more willing to go with his giftedness for the benefits of the church over his character and what it would do to destroy it. And I want to tell you that it decimated that church plant. I mean decimated. We have to be cognizant of the leaders that we put in place in the church. And it's why, I, it's why we encourage membership. It's why we encourage covenanting together so that you have a hand and a part in doing this in the church. With us. In choosing, we don't, we, the elders do not appoint elders. The elders do not appoint deacons. Your pastors here do not do that. Who appoints those? The members of the church. We encourage you to walk in this way, to help us covenant together, to, be, to choose wisely our leaders. Because these people did not. They chose family. They, cho they chose family over character. And what does Abimelech do? He goes in and destroys his 69 brothers with God sparing one. I also want to tell you, tell you this, that we should, in the, in the midst of this Choose wisely. I want to tell you to watch out for those with the mindset that they can do it better. Maybe that's you here. Maybe you think, man, if I was an elder, I wouldn't do it the way they're doing it. I do church very differently. I sat down with a guy yesterday who said, hey, man, do y'all want, want to grow more people? Do you want your church to grow? Of course I do, but not at the, not at the uh, stake of our, uh, of our covenant faithfulness that, I, that we're going to do things to uh, and put in place things that are going to make our church grow. I do want our church to grow numerically. But I also want it to grow in stature and wisdom. And I'm not going to lay down my personal and our, our convictions as elders in the church. So that we can do things that would tickle the ears of those who are on the outside. It's a mistake. But I want, to, I want you to see what happens here. Look at verse 26. Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem, what do they do? Put confidence in him. They put confidence in him. Okay, so Gael must be different than Abimelech, right? He must be different. 
They went out into a field and they, they gathered the grapes from their vineyards and they trod them and held a festival and they went into the house of their God and they ate and they drank and they reviled Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we would, should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamer, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand? Oh, man, if I could lead these people, it would be a whole lot different. That's what he's saying here. I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out, and I'll still defeat you. That's what Gail's saying. This is the person that the Israelites have put their confidence in. He's dripping with pride. He's dripping with arrogance. He's dripping with an overconfidence. And I just want to warn us to be careful here, that this could be us, that you could be sitting in those rows, and you could put a lot of confidence in yourself and your abilities, and you could think that you can do it better than the others who are doing it, and you may be right. But I just, wanted, I just want us to be careful in this, because as you get down to verse 34, we see that Abimelech, he hears the story of Gale, he hears about Gale, and he rises up in the night and he, set it, he sets an ambush against Shechem and four companies. And Gale, the son of Ebed, went out and he stood in the entrance of the gate city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And Gale sees people coming down from the mountaintops. And Gale says, look, people are coming down from the center of the land. And Zebul says to him, where is your mouth now? Who are you now? Remember this, you were the guy who called out and said, let Abimelech just gather an army. Increase your army and come out. Well, guess what Abimelech did? He increased his army and he came out. And guess what Abimelech does? He destroys Gale. Guys, we've got to choose our leaders wisely people of Shechem had a second chance. They had a chance to choose someone that would go up against Bimelech. And they chose someone who was prideful. They chose someone who might have had some giftedness, but he didn't have character. We need to choose wisely in these implications. Second implication is this. First implication, choose your leaders wisely. The second implication is this. Some of you may be sinning by not going. What does that mean? Some of you may be sinning by not going. I believe the parable here that Jotham says has a double meaning. The first meaning, I believe, is rather obvious. It's the ridiculousness of choosing Abimelech as king, right? If you look at, uh, if you look at verse 14, then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge of my shade. How many of you have ever taken shade in a thorn bush? You ever tried it? I wouldn't recommend it. Number one, there's no shade. And number two, you get caught in the thorns, right? But that's the idiosyncrasy here. Who goes and 
takes shade in the thorn bush? Who goes and takes shade under someone that's a sign of the curse? What's the curse? Genesis 3. That thorns and thistles will be in this land. Yet we're going to go take shade in that. So the second, less obvious meaning is this. So the first meaning is this ridiculousness of choosing Abimelech as a king. Ridiculous. That's what he's saying. Jotham is saying this in his parable. The second, though, is this. There were sons of Gideon who were able to lead the people, but because of their creature comforts, they refused to lead. Because of their creature comforts, they refused to lead. Abimelech seizes his opportunity because his brothers did not. So how do I know this? Let's look at it. Look at verse 8. The trees, that's the people of Shechem, the Israelites, they went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But what does the olive tree say? Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and hold sway over the trees? No, I'm not going to. So the trees go to the fig tree. You come and reign over us. But the fig tree says to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to hold sway over the trees? No, I won't do that. The trees, they finally go to the vine, which is not even a tree. You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I leave the wine and Uh, The wine that cheers God and men to hold sway over the trees? Then they go to the bramble. Then they go to the bramble. There are some here who are not using the gifts that God has given them for the building up of the church. Some of you may be here men and women alike, that God has prompted you, he's urged you, he's encouraged you, maybe he's given you some sort of calling to go to the mission field, to go and to serve people. And you're denying that calling. Because why? Because you're comfortable. Because you're living in your abundance here. Because you enjoy the sweet and the good fruit that's here. Because you enjoy the good wine that cheers God and men instead of going to the hard places. And I just want to encourage you, if that's you, that you would repent and that you would find a way to go. You would go to the, that it would not be creature comforts that would keep you from the mission field. That's one sec. The other one is this, that there are some men here who I believe God is calling into the ministry. That God is leading you towards ministry. But it's hard. It's hard to walk away from that abundance. It's hard to lay that aside to go and do something else when you've got the creature comforts, when you've got the the security of money, when you've got the security of a a job and, and benefits. I just want to tell you, don't walk in disobedience in this. As someone who worked a secular job for 35 years, I know how hard it is to walk away from a job to go into ministry. There is security. 
There, there, there's promotions. There's a nice matching 401k that I had. And it was hard. It was a hard, even taking the ministry here in this church was actually some vexation for me. I had the best secular job I'd ever had. Making the most money I ever had made and was on a trajectory towards management, towards upper management. And I could have easily walked in disobedience in this. But thankfully, I had some wise brothers around me who encouraged me to not let my creature comforts get in the way of fulfilling what God had aspired in me to do or even called me to do. And so I I needed to be obedient. I'm just encouraging you here in obedience. And the simple thing, the other simple is this. There are some of you in this church who aren't serving at all. And I just want to encourage you that that is not what we see in the Scriptures. Over and over and over again, the Bible calls us to obedience and serving. And if if you are a member of this church, I just want to encourage you to be serving somewhere. To dive in, to jump in, to serve, to use your gifts, and to not set them aside. For the building up of the church. So do not find yourself sinning by not going and serving. As these men did. It cost them their lives. That's what he's saying here. It cost them their lives. There was judgment brought upon them through the means of Abimelech. The third implication is this. We must not grow complacent in our personal growth. We must not grow complacent in our personal growth. Look at verse 16 with me. As Jotham is delivering judgment to the people of Shechem and to um, Abimelech, look at what he says. If you've acted in good faith and integrity, what does he call the Israelites to do? To act in good faith and integrity. Even in verse 15, he says, if in good faith you are anointed king, in good faith there is a, 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 um, a calling out here of walking in character. Verse 19, if you have then acted in good faith and integrity, he is calling them to obedience. He is calling the people of Shechem to follow him in obedience, to actually walk in good faith and integrity. So as we read in Romans this morning, earlier from Josiah, as you look in Romans 12, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Just that simple. Abhor what is evil. What is evil? All the things that get in the way of you worshiping and glorifying God. All the things that are good, drawing near to him, following him, desiring the Lord. So how do we do this? We love one another with brotherly affection. We we outdo one another in showing honor, it says. Man, that means there is competition here. But I would outdo you in showing honor. Not in how fast I can run the race. But that I run the race well. And then verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. 
Don't be caught being complacent. But be zealous. Be zealous. Be anxious over nothing, but be anxious for zealousness. Desire zealousness. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That is what it means to walk in obedience here. That's what it means to not grow complacent. That's what the Israelites did. That's what they've done through all the book of Judges. That they begin to be complacent. They forget the Lord. They forget to remember the Lord. The very one who had established with them a covenant. And yet they forget him. They desire their own. They eat. They do all the evil in their, in their own eyes. So be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be patient in difficulty. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. As you, as you think about Romans 12, just that short four verses there, you should read that and ask, is this me? Is this me? Do, do I love genuinely? Do I abhor what is evil but hold fast to what is good? Do I, do I love my brothers and sisters with, brother, with affection? Do I seek to outdo one another in showing honor? Do I find myself slothful in zeal or fervent in spirit? Do I rejoice in hope? Am I patient in times and struggles and opportunities? Am I constantly in prayer? Do I give to the needs of the saints? Do I seek to show hospitality to my brothers and sisters? Is this, is this me? This is not the Israelites. They're perfectly content appointing someone who is who is a relative overlooking for the character that's given to them. In good faith and integrity, you walk in this. So the fourth implication from this passage is this. God's judgment is oftentimes slow. God's judgment is oftentimes slow. Slow. I want you to listen to this from Second Peter. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8 says this in Second Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and works that are done, and it will be exposed. God is slow to bring judgment, but I want, to, I want to tell you that he is sure to bring judgment. These people suffered for three years under the wrath and the oppression of Abimelech. It's a long time to suffer through an oppression, through a tribulation. 
But then God intervenes. And then even, even for the destruction of, of bringing judgment to, to Abimelech through a, through a woman throwing a, a, a millstone out a window, I am sure for the people under the oppression in that day, it felt like a long time for that to happen. Like to get all the way through chapter 9, and this is the, this is the climax. This is how it happens. God's judgment is oftentimes slow, but it's short. And I want to tell you that if you are here this morning, and you've been trusting in yourself, you've been trusting in your own ambitions, desires, maybe even your own works for salvation. I just want to warn you in this, and you have not repented, and you have not trusted in the Lord, and you have not bowed the knee to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. I just want to tell you that God's judgment is slow, but it's also short. And that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you can repent and trust and turn away from your evil desires and put your hope and your trust in Christ Jesus. And so that's where I want to end this morning. If destruction is from within, I want to show you that hope is from without. Look at verse 23. Where, where is God working in all of this? Look at verse 23. Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years, verse 22. Then God sends a spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. So God intervenes. Even though the people follow their own selfish desires, even though Abimelech is king, And there's oppression, God intervenes, and he causes disruption. And then we get to verse 55. You see that the woman, what's happened before here is that the woman has killed Abimelech. The armor bearer has killed, or the woman has injured Abimelech. With a death-crushing blow, the armor-bearer finishes off the work. And then we see, when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed and went back home. And then in verse 56, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his king, his father, in killing his 70 brothers. So God returned the evil of Abimelech. It was God who did the judgment And would bring peace back to the people. 57. God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerobel. So here we see God's working in the midst of this, even if it's in the midst of judgment towards the people who reviled him, who were against him. But also that for the people of Israel, for his covenant people, there is hope. There is hope in him. Look in, look in chapter 10. People are going back home. Abimelech's dead. God's brought evil. He's destroyed the evil. He's brought judgment on Shechem. And then we get this first four chapters of chapter 10, first four verses of chapter 10. Abimelech there arose to save Israel. 
Just that simple statement. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel. Do you see God's graciousness in this? Do you see God's goodness in this? These people didn't deserve this. They deserve the wrath of God, right? As we all do. But God shows his character to us. God shows us where to put our hope. And it's not in ourselves. It's not in other men. It's not in kings, earthly kings. It's not in our family members. But we put our hope in God. Because in God, we find 23 years of rest under Tola. And then after him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 23 year, 22 years, 45 years of peace. For a people who deserved none. And I just want to tell you that this is how God works. That in our most undeserving and in, 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 in when we were chasing after our own desires, that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. Christ would do this for us, a people so undeserving, a people heading in the opposite direction from him, that he would rescue us and save us. Two ways here that we can look at this and go, man, look at God's graciousness. Number one, he uses, he uses sometimes the weakest vessels to achieve his most glorious results. He just did this in Gideon. He did it, he did it uh, with the left-handed Savior, right, in, cha- in chapter 2. He did it with Gideon. He d- he's going to continue to do it. Even in the power and might of Samson, he's going to bring Samson low before he actually uses him for his good, as we'll see. Over and over and over again, this is what God does. He will sometimes use the wicked. He uses a woman. It could have been a man. It could have been what didn't matter. But for them, for them, for them, for the Israelites, it did matter. That it was a woman that destroyed Abimelech. Why did he want his his armor bearer to destroy to kill do the ultimate killing so he wouldn't be remembered as being killed by a woman? Yet here he is for all time and eternity in Scripture. Not only that, if you go and read First Samuel. Guess what, they, guess what they refer back to? They refer back to Abimelech being destroyed by a woman. So it went on and on in history that God would do this, that God would use sometimes the weakest to bring down the strong. Isn't this what he did with Christ Jesus? Christ was weak. He was a lamb going to the slaughter. He was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted. He was the weakest, he was a weak vessel. Perfect in every way, yes. But he, look, here's what he did for you. This millstone that was thrown on the head of Abimelech, had Abimelech repented and trusted in Christ, guess what, guess what, or trusted in God as Savior? That's what Christ does for us in this. He takes and he absorbs the millstone for us. He absorbs the wrath that we deserve. All of us 
separated from a holy God. But Christ. But Christ. And our hope is not in anything in this world. It's not in the creature comforts. It's not in our leaders. It's not the leaders in this church, leaders in other churches, leaders of our countries and nations and all those. It is in God. It is in Christ Jesus. That he would take on the weight and the punishment of sin by going to the cross. Absorbing the millstone that deserved, that's supposed to fall on our head. He took it for himself. For good and forever. So as you think about this, let's not grow weary. Let's not grow complacent. But be vigilant in guarding the church and our gospel. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Many times we read passages like this and we're confused by where you are and what you're doing in this. And sometimes it even feels like you're, you're absent. But Lord, we know that there are times when you're silent, but you're never absent. You are a sovereign, holy God. You are ever-present, ever-powerful. All-knowing. Help us to trust in you. Help us to not grow complacent and weary in, in doing good. That we would be vigilant, Lord, to not forget. That we would be vigilant to not go after our own desires. To not do evil in your eyes. But Lord, help us to hope in Christ. Knowing that judgment, although it is slow, is going to come. But for those who are in Christ, that judgment will pass over us and on to him. Man, we thank you for this news, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As the musicians come...